in 1 John chapter 5, the testimony tonight that's a little bit before the book of Revelation. We've been moving verse by verse. You've been hearing from some different teachers as we've moved through this. I have the privilege of picking it back up in 1 John chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 6. If you're physically able to stand, would you stand to your feet for the reading of God's word? 1 John 5, beginning in verse 6, the testimony. It reads this way. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, 1 John 5, 6. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, verse 8, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. The one who believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. And this is the testimony or the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts. You may be seated. Father, thank you so much for your living word. This is such a crucial text to understand. It's a little bit maybe uh, mysterious in some of the languages you first read it, but we're going to dig that out tonight. Would you give us help by the power of your Holy Spirit? Give us ears to hear what you would say to your church on this given night. We love you. We lay our lives before you. And for those who are maybe not as familiar with the gospel or maybe brand new to it, may you open their eyes to see wonderful things about this great witness from heaven. In Jesus' name I pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. First, to work backwards for a moment, you'll notice in verse 13, uh, we don't have this often in the Bible, but 1 John 5, 13 says, these things I have written to you who believe in the, the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That would be called a purpose statement. And uh, that's a good uh, verse to highlight in your Bible if you highlight verses, because here you have the purpose of the writing. John says, I've written this to you for this reason. And then he says that you may know, that you may have confidence, that you can boldly stand upon the promises of God and know, and this is huge, that you have eternal life. My wife and I recently uh, took a trip, as many of you know, and we were in the car one way for 21, 22 hours. We went up just an hour away from the Canadian border. So it was a long time in the car, and you start to try to get a little creative in what you listen to. So my wife was searching. Some people had told us about murder mystery podcasts and things like that. And my wife had stumbled upon a real life murder mystery, which some of those can be pretty intriguing. And it was this case. I don't even remember the state that it was in, but a high school student was murdered. She was a young Asian female and they ended up uh, basically indicting a young man who had dated her And they indicted him, and he's serving a life sentence. Um, I don't think he has the possibility of parole. And he was indicted by the testimony of one eyewitness who claimed that 
he had confessed what he was going to do prior to what occurred. What's interesting about the case is that there was very little circumstantial evidence. They didn't really do any DNA research. They did find her body. But there were a couple of other players in the drama, and this is a real-life story now, where um, they looked like they could have been the suspects and could have been the ones that had done it. But because this one eyewitness had said this guy confessed it and that he uh, was privy to the information, that was all it took. And so this guy is spending a life sentence uh, in prison. And he, of course, is claiming that he's uh, innocent. And so there's a couple of institutions, organizations that go back and check. This has happened, I believe, if I recall correctly, might have been around 2000. So he's been in prison for maybe 2005. He's been in prison for 15 or 20 years. And he went in at about the age of 18. So he's in his mid-30s right now. And he's appe- he tried to appeal the case, but there's, there's a law firm that does this kind of thing. And they've gone and they're trying to find the DNA evidence, but it's from a long time ago. And so they're trying to backtrack one of those cold case, you know, files that are kind of intriguing to find out. So we, we listened to hours of this and, you know, there was about 10 or 12 episodes and finally, you know, you, you get to the end of it. There's no resolve in the case right now, but there's apparently some things moving on it. And I bring that up because tonight is about testimony. And courts of law will put a great amount of weight on eyewitness testimony and, um, the, if you look at someone who testifies in a court of law, I will tell you that this, this particular individual who was their uh, key witness to the whole thing had a very shady life. He was involved in drugs and some other infractions of the law. He wasn't the high standing in, you know, witness of integrity. Let's just put it this way. He was known as kind of a local drug dealer and there were some other issues with him and he's the one that put this other guy in prison. Whether he's innocent or guilty, I have no idea. But they put a lot of weight on his evidence and he wasn't really a young man of much integrity. He was questionable at best. So when we look at courts of law, if you're into the, those kinds of shows or if you are into the you know, uh, evidence and that kind of thing, this might intrigue you some, but we do put a lot of weight on eyewitness testimony. And of course, if someone's an expert in their field, if someone um, you know, has a good reputation of being an honest person, et cetera, et cetera, and then if you have multiple witnesses, it, it even gets stronger, of course, because this is something that scholars call multiple attestation. That's a big way to say that multiple people are attesting to a fact. So when multiple people, when one, two, or three witnesses all say the same thing, that gets, it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. This is where the text is taking us tonight. It's uh, one of the key words is the idea of testimony or witness, which is the same Greek word. And um, another key word is the word no. You're gonna see the word no eight times in 1 John chapter five and some, I think, 30 times in this little letter. And it starts off this way. It says, this is the one who came by water and blood, and then it tells us who the one is. The, he's named in verse five, and he's also named here Jesus Christ. This is the one, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Not with water only, but he came with water, notice, with the water and with the blood. Now, what are we to make of this strange combination of words in the opening verse of the section tonight? 
that Jesus Christ came with the water and with the blood. Well, first of all, I just want you to mark this if you haven't already. This is the one. Jesus is the focus of the entire New Testament. And for that matter, really the entire Bible. The whole Bible ultimately points to Jesus. He is the one. He is the one that you really need to understand. He is the one that you really need to study. Uh, You read the four gospels, the epistles, the letters are simply just commentary on more depth on the doctrine of Christ and then other matters like church life and, and spiritual gifts and stuff like that. But Jesus is the focus of the entire scripture and Jesus is God's final revelation. In former days, God spoke through the prophets in many portions and in many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, who is the very nature of God. He is God in human flesh. He is the incarnation of God. In fact, he said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. But something that John is going to highlight tonight is something scholars call the hypostatic union. If you're interested, H-Y-P-O, then the word static and union, just like it sounds, hypostatic union. What does that mean? That Jesus Christ in one person is both fully God and fully man, called the hypostatic union. He is 100% God and 100% man. Now, if you've been studying First John with us, you know that in the first century, so this is all the events that happen the, the passion events of the life, death, and burial, and resurrection of Jesus and his ascension. In the later first century, something began to develop called Gnosticism. It starts with a G, and it has ism at the end, but it's the Greek word for to know or knowledge. And the Gnostics claimed that they were getting revelation knowledge from God and had insight into Christ and his nature that nobody else had except if they were initiated into the club of the Gnostics, if you will. And here's what one of them said, and this one in particular is named Serinthus or Corinthus. It's spelled C-E-R-I-N-T-H-U-S. This is important. Um, Serinthus or Corinthus, he died A.D. 100. So most scholars believe that John's writing 1 John and Revelation mid-90s, 90 to 95 A.D. That's a bit debated. But Serinthus is obviously influential, and then he dies around A.D. 100. So at the end of the first century, really right around the time that the canon was, uh, you know, the New Testament was written and the last apostle died and all of that. Well, John is dealing with what's called a Gnostic heresy. When you hear the word heresy, what you need to know is heresy is based upon a Greek word called heresies, and it just simply defined means a strong-willed opinion, but a heretic, and many of which were kicked out of the church throughout church history, was a person who stuck with a strong-willed opinion despite the fact that it differed from the clear teaching of Scripture or the church, what the church said about a particular passage or a particular idea. And so in this first century, around the end of the first century, this Serinthus character taught something called docetism. Sorry for all the big words, but here's simply what it meant. He claimed that Jesus just appeared to be human but he wasn't really human. And, 
and his form of this was that the Christ spirit, in quotes, came upon Jesus the man at his baptism in the Jordan River by John the Baptist and left him prior to his crucifixion on the cross. And that they were two separate realities. The Christ spirit was one entity or a nature, if you will, and the man Christ was another, and they were separated so that the Christ spirit, I'm putting that in quotes for a reason, came on Jesus when he was baptized and left him then before he was crucified. And this is what this Gnostic uh, teaching was about. So there was a denial that the true Christ actually went through the crucifixion. They tried to separate it in some weird way. And their claim was they were getting revelation knowledge from heaven or from God or, and that you, if you were going to be in the know, if you were going to be someone who really was in the club and really knew God, you too would have to embrace this truth about Jesus. Now, I don't have to tell you that throughout history, from the time of the actual events of the Passion of the Christ until now, we've had many people claim that they've had revelation knowledge that is contrary to the Bible. I'll give you a couple examples. I'm not trying to beat up on people, but here's one example. Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon church, claimed that he got supernatural revelation from an angel, and then he claimed that God appeared to him in the woods when he was a teenager, and the record says that Joseph, who really didn't have much of an education um, just because of the times that he lived in, he was a young man. He said he was struggling with which religion was true or which denomination to follow. He goes out into the woods and he gets this vision. And then as the church or the Latter-day Saint church evolves, there's a lot of weird doctrines that come down. And I will tell you this, they redefine God. They redefine Jesus, they redefine how one gets saved, and they pretty much uh, are contradicting every essential of the historic Christian faith. So this is why uh, Mormonism would be considered a non-Christian cult, not because we're mad at anybody or whatever. Joseph Smith actually was the one who said that he got revelation contrary to the Bible. And this is happening, by the way, in the 1820s. So the Bible was completed, really. The New Testament canon was known and completed, written by the end of the first century. So 1,700 years later or thereabouts, Joseph Smith is claiming to get different revelation. And he actually claims that he restores the lost gospel. And he has insight about who God is, the nature of God. And one of the things that comes out of that teaching is that men can become the gods of their own planet. And he believed that there were Quakers living on the moon and all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, so that's one example. There's another man in history who was the founder of Jehovah's Witnesses, and his name is Charles Taze Russell. Charles Taze Russell was struggling with the concept of the Trinity. And so he was involved in a clothing store that I believe he owned, and he was having debates at the counter of the clothing store about the Trinity, and he ended up denying the Trinity, and uh, he called the Trinity, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are the one true God, a doctrine from the devil. 
And he said anybody who embraced it was being influenced by the devil, that it was a demonic doctrine. And so he, he denied the deity of Jesus Christ. He made him the first and greatest creation of God. And sadly, uh, and I don't know if he knew this, Charles Taze Russell was simply regurgitating an ancient heresy uh, way back in the fourth century taught by a man named Arius of Alexandria. And Arius of Alexandria was kicked out of the church at the Council of Nicaea, which was really all about the fact that he was trying to say that Jesus was created, and while he was divine, he was not God. And he got kicked out of the church, and the vote wasn't even close. It was like 300 and something to two. And the two, I think, were Arius and one of his buddies that came with him, or two others that came with him. So my point is this, that throughout history, there's been a lot of people that have tried to redefine Christ, and Serinthus, or Corinthus, was doing this. And so it is very likely that John's argument is to debunk the false Gnostic docetism of Serinthus, or Corinthus, and to straighten out the church And to tell them essentially this, don't believe that. That's false. That's not true. And if you embrace that, you will not have the true biblical Christ. And if you have the wrong Jesus, as Walter Martin used to famously say, you can be wrong enough to lose your soul. Because the wrong Jesus can't save you. I was in a class on Mormonism some years ago, and one of our professors Uh, jokingly said, there's a lot of guys named Jesus in Mexico, but they can't save your soul. (laughs) Specifically, they're named Jesus. No disrespect. You guys get what I'm saying? Just because someone claims to have a Jesus, there's a Jesus in witchcraft. There's a Jesus in Islam. There's a Jesus of the New Age movement. There's a Jesus of Mormonism. There's, There's Jesus of Jehovah's Witnesses. We can go down the line. There's a Jesus, in quotes, in just about every movement. But the question is, is it the true Jesus? Now, some of you may be thinking, Pastor Michael, are you making more of this than there there really needs to be? Actually not. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 3 and 4, if you're taking notes, Paul argues that there's another Jesus and another gospel and another spirit And he says, I don't want you to be deceived like Eve was deceived in the garden. 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4. And he he says, I want you to be doctrinally pure. So tonight's going to be a little bit more about some heavier doctrine because of the the thrust of the text. And uh, Irenaeus is the one who confronted or has a record of this uh, Gnostic heresy pushed by Serinthus. Serinthus was trained in Egypt. He was a resident in the province of Asia. He flourished in the 90s of the first century, as I mentioned. Just to reiterate, he contended that the Christ spirit descended on the human Jesus at his baptism, but left him before his crucifixion. He taught that the Christ and Jesus are separate beings. He taught that Jesus was born naturally without a virgin birth. Serinthus was educated in the wisdom of Egyptian issues from Ephesus, I'm quoting from a website now. So he would have had a mixture of Christian theology and paganism. Uh, John wrote in 1 John 5, 6, the verse we just read, that Jesus, the Jesus who was baptized at the beginning of his ministry was the same person who was crucified 
on the cross. Such heretical views destroy, quoting another author now, not only the true humanity of Jesus, but also the atonement. For Jesus must not only have been truly God, but also the truly human and physical, physically real man who actually suffered and died upon the cross in order to be the acceptable substitutionary sacrifice for sin. The biblical view of Jesus affirms his complete humanity as well as his full deity. The Christ, this is F.F. Bruce, came through water, some believe baptism, but Sarinthus said, but not through blood, not through death. To this misinterpretation, F.F. Bruce now quoting, of the truth, John replies that the one who believes, uh, acknowledges Jesus to be the Son of God, came not with water only, but with the water and the blood. The one who died on the cross was truly the Christ, the Son of God who was baptized in the Jordan. This, says Bruce, is the primary force of John's words, close quote. Just take a look at Hebrews just for a moment, Hebrews chapter two. This is a key verse I want you to see if you haven't marked it before. This is what it says regarding Jesus. And remember, the writer of Hebrews is dealing with the superiority of Jesus to angels, to the law, etc. And he says these words, Hebrews 2, 14. He says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, we are human, 2.14 of Hebrews. Jesus himself, he himself likewise also partook of the same. He became human. That through death, he, Jesus, might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. Notice that Jesus Christ, the Jesus who took on humanity, is the one who died on the cross. And he did it to defeat the enemy, to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation. What's that? To be the sacrifice, to appease God's wrath for the sins of the people. For since he, was, he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Back to 1 John. You cannot deny that the Jesus who was born of the Virgin Mary is the Jesus who died on the cross and the Jesus who came out of the tomb. There are variations of heresy that will say the Jesus that went into the tomb is not the Jesus that came out of the tomb. This, there's a form of this heresy in Jehovah's Witnesses where they say that God recreated Jesus in the tomb and that he came out with a different body. No, he did not. Because he showed them the nail prints in his hands and in his feet and the scar in his side. God wasn't playing a joke on people. The Christ who went into the tomb is the Christ who came out of the tomb. The Christ that was baptized in the Jordan is the Christ who died on the cross. If you deny that, then you deny the efficacy of his atonement. And you deny the gospel. And you deny 
the testimony of the word of God. So you say, well, Pastor Michael, what do we make of water and blood? Four possible interpretations. One, Jesus' baptism and death. Baptism, water, death, the blood. Two, number two, view of water and the blood, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That is him becoming human, flesh and blood and water, speaking potentially of birth. Three, the third view, the water and the blood that flowed from his side at the cross. We'll talk about that in a second. Four, it applies to the baptism of the believer and the Lord's Supper. This is called a sacramental view. I don't, I don't give much weight to it. I would only say to you that the fourth view is simply maybe some application to the believer, but theologically, it doesn't hold up. So three possible views. One, the water and the blood speak of Jesus' baptism and death. Two, they speak of his incarnation into the world. Three, the water and blood that flowed out of his side when he died on the cross. The, the death of Jesus on the cross uh, and the water and blood we'll look at in a moment but the first interpretation, Jesus' baptism being the water and his death being the blood, is a very early and largely agreed upon interpretation. So accepted that one writer says, by the 18th century, John Wesley could simply assume that the first view is correct. And so much so that the New Living Translation in verse 6 reads this way. Jesus Christ was revealed as God's son by his baptism in water, 1 John 5, 6, New Living Translation, and by shedding his blood on the cross. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And the spirit, who is truth, confirms it with his testimony. Now, I will tell you, if you have a New Living Translation, that is simply an interpretive uh, verse. That is that when you read the Living Bible and the New Living Translation, as good as they are, this is an interpretation. This is not a word-for-word -word, uh, Bible text. And I still believe the New Living Translation, Translation is good, but you need to know it's a paraphrase. So it's largely an interpretation from the original text. It's not word-for-word. -word. And they've certainly taken some liberties on that one. They, they've told you what they think what the meaning is. They've given you their view, which it is what it is, but you just need to know. So is it that the water is Jesus' baptism? And how does that tie into the witness? Let's go over to Matthew chapter 3. So Jesus' baptism, of course, is well known. And something incredible happened there. As Jesus came to the Jordan River, Matthew chapter 3, first gospel, um, here's what is recorded. After Jesus, Matthew 3.16, was baptized, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, Matthew 3.16. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw, John the Baptist saw, the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, at the baptism of Jesus, you have a twofold identifier of his who he is. You have the Spirit lighting upon him as if to say, that's him. And then the Father speaking from heaven. Now, I mentioned at the outset of this message that the, the power of eyewitness testimony and, and then the integrity of a witness is important, right? How about the Father and the Spirit 
testifying to who Jesus is at his baptism. I would say you ain't going to get much better. You ain't going to get better than that. It doesn't get any higher than that, brethren. Right from the get-go, the Spirit lands upon him, if you will, or lights upon him and remains, as we'll look at in a moment. And the Father says, that is my Son, and I am well pleased with him. There it is, right? Now there's something else. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John chapter 1. Now the same author that penned the Gospel of John penned 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Revelation. And in John 1, here's what he records, or here's what John records of John the Baptist. John testified, John 1.32, he bore witness saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him, John 1.33. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, says John, and have borne witness that this is who? He is the Son of God. And scholars would point out that he is God the Son. Notice the witness language. I have borne witness Right? I, I saw this with my eyes, and I bear witness to this truth that the Holy Spirit remained on him. So you have a threefold, threefold witness here just to think about if you're taking notes. And this is important for those of you who are dialoguing with people investigating the Christian faith. The Father, the Spirit, of course, Jesus is his own testimony. So you can say the triune God is testifying there. And the forerunner... John the Baptist, who didn't really know necessarily what to look for or, or who it was going to be, was told how to identify Christ. So we've got multiple attestation here, right? We've got multiple witnesses all saying, this is the one. He is the one. And you say, well, why, why is this important? Well, for those of you who grew up in the church or longtime Christians, you, you might not think of this much, but there are people all over the planet tonight who are wondering, is Jesus really the way to God? If I trust Jesus with my soul for my salvation, is that it? Am I good? Can I be confident in that? And some of you may have personally wrestled with that. But the witnesses are coming forth. The testimony is coming forth. The word witness and testimony is the same Greek word. It's martyrio, and it's the word, one of the forms of the word is martus. It came to be known as a martyr, but the original word martyrio means to be a witness or to testify as in a court of law, or it could also have the, the shade of meaning of to give evidence. And so this is what's happening now. And uh, it says in Acts 5.32, we are witnesses to these things, the apostle said to the Sanhedrin, and so is the Holy Spirit who God has given to those who obey him. Acts 5.32. So back to 1 John. The facts about the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus come into focus as the Holy Spirit works through the word of God, records eyewitness testimony, some of which we've looked at so far. And we are looking at what I would call infallible witnesses. It's impossible for God to lie. 
Therefore, the record that we have in Scripture is undeniable as to the person of Jesus Christ. And so this is the one, 1 John 5, 6, who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. Now, I gave you the baptism record because that's the most ancient accepted view of the water. And with the eyewitness testimony of the Spirit and the Father, it sounds pretty good to me, right? I mean, I see eyewitness stuff going on. I see the water with the baptism. And so I go, I can certainly see why uh, there was large agreement that the water and the blood is the baptism and the death of Jesus. And John the Baptist, uh, when Jesus came up to him and you know, he was like, uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Can you imagine if Jesus approached you? Hey, baptize me. You're like, ah, no, no, no. I don't think you know who I am. I can't, I'm not even going to untie your shoes, man. <laughs> you need to baptize me. No, 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 no. Let this be done that we might fulfill all righteousness. Now, Jesus comes, and as he's, as he's coming, John makes this declaration. He says, behold, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Prior to his baptism, he's already the Christ. None of this nonsense about the Christ spirit coming on him at his baptism. Luke 2.11 says in the birth narrative, for today in the city of David has been born for you a savior who's about to become Christ the Lord when he gets baptized in the Jordan. Uh -uh. Uh -uh. Sorry. Today is born in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. Amen? He is the Christ. You could say Always, uh, we could argue a little bit about that, but of course, at the moment of his conception, and then however you want to walk that out. Luke 2.26, it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. Luke 2.26, sorry, Sorinthus, Corinthus, you wrong. Jesus did not get the Christ spirit at his baptism. Well, some of you are saying, but the Holy Spirit did come upon him. Yeah, probably more for identification purposes. And certainly we would argue that Acts 10.38 says that Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit and he went around doing good. But none of this stuff about the Christ spirit coming upon him, uh, the Holy Spirit came upon him, certainly. And then the second witness is the blood Serenthus claimed that the Christ Spirit left Jesus prior to his crucifixion. Well, what are we to make of that? Well, Shane mentioned that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. The blood of bulls and goats can't do it. Neither can the blood of one human man who's not divine. Amen? Do you know how many people have been crucified throughout history? Do you know how many people were crucified in the first century? The fact that someone's crucified and sheds some blood is not the issue here. The issue is whose blood is it and what can it accomplish for you and me 2,000 years later? That's the issue. And what would make the blood of Jesus different? Ephesians 2.13 says, Now 
in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Hebrews 9.14 says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 1 Peter 1.19 says, you were uh, redeemed with the precious blood as of a lamb uh, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Enough of the nonsense that the Christ spirit left him before his crucifixion. Uh-uh. The blood of Jesus Christ was spilled. The one true Christ. See, this is why heresy is so dangerous. Because now it undermines the atonement. It undermines the person of Christ, his mission, the prophecies that were uh, building up to this moment that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be born of a virgin, that the government would rest upon his shoulders, etc., etc. The prophecies that he would die, uh, that he would bear our sins and by his wounds and by his stripes we are healed and that he would shed his blood. This is a denial of the prophecies as well. So sometimes people say, oh, let's not argue about doctrine. Poor old Corinthus. He means well. No, he doesn't. That's, these are doctrines of demons. This is the stuff that must be defended. These are the hills that the church historically said, we will die on these hills. We, we can argue about the end times, you know, timing and, and that kind of stuff. And we can argue about some other things. But we ain't going to... We ain't going to give any ground on this one because this undermines everything that God has said about who Jesus is. And so uh, I want to take you now to John 19 and tell you uh, as you go over there that this is the other major interpretation that has merit to the water and the blood. You'll see why in a moment. Just note that John, who also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in Revelation, was there at the cross. This is confirmed in John 19, in verse 25, just to remind us of the scene. John 19, 25 says, Therefore the soldiers did these things, but there was standing by the cross of Jesus his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother, John 19, 26 and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. So that's John. I think everybody agrees that's John. And John is close by. He's close enough to interact with Jesus. And he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciples, so John is certainly within shouting distance, right? Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his household, his own household, this is why many people believe that Joseph is gone. He has died at this point. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. And then I want you to skip down to verse 30, John 19, 30. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, which means paid in full. It's tetelestai, a single Greek word, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. The Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation so that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they may be taken away. 
The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other man who was crucified with him. That was to speed up death so that they couldn't get any more breath. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. Immediately there came out, note it, blood and water. And then notice this oath type of language or witness language. And he who is seen has borne witness and his witness is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass that the scripture might be fulfilled, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Because the same author takes this time to point out the blood and water and then says, I saw that. I was an eyewitness to that. There are many who believe that the blood and water could point to the crucifixion scene itself. It's, it's open for debate, and I'll let you chew on it. And where you land on it, I, I don't think is that consequential. But let me just say, as you go back to 1 John, that the reason that this is emphasized is a couple things. One, John is saying the same Jesus that was born of the virgin that was baptized in the Jordan is the same Jesus that died on the cross. Enough of the Gnostic stuff. Here's the other thing. The blood and water confirm that Jesus physically died, which would then uh, debunk anybody trying to say that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, or maybe this is one of the theories of the resurrection, that he revived in the tomb. So one resurrection theory to explain the resurrection through natural phenomenon is this. Not joking. Jesus taken off the cross, He's passed out, but not really dead. He's put into the cross by jo or put into the tomb by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, and then in the cool, damp weather of the tomb, he revives. And apparently, there's a good doctor somewhere off in the deep shadows of the tomb who comes to his rescue, patches him up. They somehow roll away the stone, and Jesus says, "I'm alive." Uh -huh. <laughs> nope. And the spear spilling out the blood and water would indicate that his pericardium was pierced and that some people say this, and this is not accurate. Jesus gave up his spirit, but that he died of a broken heart. That's sentimental. It's not actually accurate. He gave up his spirit. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But, but the piercing of his side indicates he was physically dead, no chance that there's anything else going on here. And that the Christ who fulfilled all these prophecies uh, on the, at the cross is the one who died on the cross. I'm going to have to move quickly. 1 John 5, 7. It is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth, or is the truth. Now, this Spirit, which we could talk about, but I think you all know that the Spirit is called the Spirit of truth by Jesus, the helper that would come into the world. He's called the Spirit of truth and he moved men to write Holy Scripture. No prophecy of Scripture was ever written uh, by the will of man, but men of old or men of God were moved along by the power of the Spirit. That's in 2 Peter 1. I think it's verse 19. All Scripture is inspired by God. God breathed. The Spirit is testifying. 
He testifies to the person of Christ. He came to point the world to Christ and then to point out, uh, obviously, uh, sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so there's an agreement here. The spirit, the truth, who lighted on him at his baptism, anointed him, of course, is the one who also testifies. And I would say, obviously, through the word of God. But I would say, on a second level, there's an internal witness. Romans 8 says, his spirit bears witness with my spirit that I am what? A child of God. And I cry out, Abba, Father. So I have an internal witness from the spirit. In 1 John 2, 20 and 27, we are told that we have an anointing which allows us to discern truth from error. Remember that? 1 John 2, 20 and 27. That same Holy Spirit will affirm. Say, yep, that's right. You're reading your Bible sometimes. You're hearing a message. Sometimes you're hearing a message and you're like, oh, whoop, whoop, whoop. <laughs> right? But there's, there's, you're reading your Bible. You're hearing a message that's hopefully correctly uh, interpreted. And what happens? Your heart thrills, Right? And the witness of the Spirit is in you. He bears witness. And you have the discernment of the Spirit, which 1 Corinthians 2 talks about that the spiritual man has. And so some of you have a New King James Bible, and you're saying, say what? <laughs> because 1 John 5, 7 and the New King James says there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. What do we make of that? King James, New King James. Uh, here's what we make of it. It's called a variant reading, and it is not in the earliest and best manuscripts. Only eight very late Greek manuscripts contain the reading of the New King James or King James. And uh, they're pretty late. Uh, I think Latin Vulgate. Furthermore, four of the eight manuscripts contain that reading in the margin of the actual manuscript. To have it in these late of manuscripts, half of which is in the margin, makes it questionable. Dr. A.T. Robertson believed the verse was probably written in the margin by a scribe. No Greek or Latin fathers, Trinitarians, etc. even though this is a good Trinitarian verse, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, Jesus being the Word, it, it's true in what it would, would articulate, but it's not original. Don't let that bother you. We have so many manuscripts. We have uh, thousands of manuscripts that whenever there's a variant reading, and there are some, we're able to get back to what the original is because we have very early copies. So don't let it worry you. And, and I think all reputable scholars would agree that it's just not original. If you have a King James, New King James, it's, it's just not what it originally said. There are three that bear witness uh, the New King James adds on earth. There are three that testify the spirit, the water, and the blood. We've seen all three now, and the three are in agreement. Praise God. They all are testifying to a reality. You could say it this way. The baptism of Jesus, where the spirit was present. The death of Jesus on the cross, where all these prophecies are fulfilled, supernatural events, the darkness, the earthquake, the veil in the temple torn. Even after Jesus rose from the dead, some saints came out of the tomb and appeared to many in the holy city. There was a whole lot of shaking going on. God was doing miracles left and right to say, this is the event 
that is the, at the precipice of history. I've allowed my son to die for you. Take a look at the cross. Because my son died there and I put him on display so that you can be born again to a living hope that will never be taken away from you. Amen? Man, if we can't get excited about this, I don't know what we get excited about. So far, so, so much for the heresy of Serinthus or people like him who attempt to re redefine the biblical Christ. You are playing a dangerous game, my friend. If you start messing with things that God has ordained from the very foundation of the world, you are messing in the wrong place and you're going to stand before God. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of men could speak of John the Baptist. It could speak of the other apostles like John, the beloved apostle. The witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that he, God himself, has borne witness concerning his son. J. Vernon McGee says, many people will believe whatever they read or hear, but they will not believe the witness of God. God has not left himself without a witness, brothers and sisters. Do you remember the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17? Jesus goes up on the mountain. He's transfigured before the apostles and he's real shiny. Remember, his garments are white with light and everything's happening. And Peter says, it's good that we're here. I'm gonna build three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. We're good. And then there's a voice and there's a cloud, the glory of God. And the father speaks, this is my beloved son. Second time, at least. And he says, listen to him. And Moses and Elijah are on the mountaintop. Guess what they represent? The law and the prophets. And the law and the prophets are saying, he's the one. He's the son of God. He's God the son. He's the fulfillment of the law. He's the fulfillment of the prophets. He's, and they back up in the gospels and only Jesus is left there. And the Father's voice, you have the law, the prophets, the Father, the Shekinah glory of God. Man, there it is. And you also have Peter, James, and John wiping their eyes, <laughs> saying, oh, should we build some shelters? Here's the thing, brethren. We've got eyewitness testimony from heaven to earth and in between. Jesus is God. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of an iniquity or sin which he has committed. Deuteronomy 19.15, on the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. John 5.32, Jesus says, there is another who bears witness of me, that is my father. And I know the testimony which he bears of me is true. And what the Bible is simply doing is saying, you want two or three witnesses? I'll give you even more. Stacked upon, stacked upon, stacked upon, stacked so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ. Not only that, but he's the giver of eternal life. Amen? The life is in his son. And the one who believes in the son of God, here's your part, you must believe. You must decide that you are going to trust in the son of God. The one who believes in the son of God, this is the response to all that God has stacked before us. You simply must trust what God has said. You must believe in the son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe God, what has he done? What has she done? Made him a liar. Somebody might say, I just really wish I could believe. I just really wish I could have faith. Do you? How much more evidence do you need? 
I mean, we've talk, talked about all the theological stuff here and the passion stuff here, not to mention we have a world that we need to explain. We have involuntary organs that we need to explain. We have systems in our body that are working right now, eyes that we look out through, taste buds, nostrils, you name it, a circulatory system, a beating heart, uh, miraculous things. That we, uh, a cosmic accident exploded uh, five billion, six billion years ago. Yeah, okay. The testimony is in, brethren. God is asking you to believe. And one writer puts it this way, refusal to accept the witness of God is tantamount to calling him a liar. And I don't think that that's a good career move. I don't think calling the one who claims to be the truth and calling him a liar is a good career move. And everyone who, you know, takes their little schnappy attitude, you know, I just find out on that day because I have some questions. Oh, you do? I think I'll have some questions for you, too. The testimony is in. And the witness is this. God has given us eternal life, and I think John is trying to uh, calm the hearts of befuddled believers who maybe have been exposed to this false teaching. And the life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. The life here is zoe, Ionios, it's uh, eternal life. It's, it's in his son. Jesus gives eternal life. He is eternal life. He who has the son, the true son that we've been looking at, he, uh, he who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. Can it get any clearer than that? 1 John 2.23 puts it this way. If you have the son, you have the father. Or if you have the father, you have the son. But if you don't have the son, you don't have the father and vice versa. That's a loose paraphrase. You get it. You can't have one without the other. If you don't know Jesus, then you don't know the father. You can claim to be spiritual. I'm not trying to be mean here. I'm just giving you the truth. You can claim to be spiritual. You can claim whatever you want to claim. But if you, I'm just quoting the Bible. If you don't have the son, you don't have the life. You're not going to heaven. A couple of years ago, we did a memorial service. It was very sad for a young man who passed away. And the uncle got up, and there was a crowd of many uh, unchurched people here sitting in this actual sanctuary. And he said these words, and you could have heard a pin drop. Not everybody's going to heaven. <gasps> what? <laughs> that, but that makes me feel better at memorial services to, to think that our loved ones looking down on us and everybody's gonna be okay in the end. It's nice, I, I guess, to say to people, but it's not true. So it's, I guess it's not that nice then. Because if it's not true, then all you've given people is a false hope. But what you say to people is this. Say to people, you know what? Your heart's beating and you're sitting here. You could have life. It's found in Jesus, the Son of God. And the gospel was preached that day and I don't know what, Everybody did with it. But here's the point. If you have the Son of God, Jesus, you have eternal life. If you don't have him, end of verse 12, you don't have eternal life. But on a positive note, I've written these things, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you might what? Say it, brethren, that you may know that you have eternal life. 
Forget about these people who are saying to you, you got to be in the club. You got to have the secret handshake and the secret knowledge. And maybe we'll get together later and figure out if we can get in touch with God and figure out who the real crystal Christ and Christ spirit is. No, 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 no. Maybe we can get together and we'll have somebody read our poems and we'll figure out. No, 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 no. The witness, the testimony is in. Jesus Christ gives life. Aren't you glad? And here's the other thing. You can know. You don't have to guess. You don't have to wonder. You can know. Warren Wiersbe, I end with this, says when Sir James Simpson, the discoverer of chloroform, was on his deathbed, a friend asked him, Sir, Sir James, what are your speculations? Simpson replied, speculations? I have no speculations, for I know in whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him until that day. Father, thank you for the testimony that you've given regarding your son. Thank you for the times that you spoke directly from heaven. Thank you for affirming his identity. Jesus, thank you for saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you know me? I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one's coming to the Father except through me. Jesus, that's what you said. Oh, help us to believe. And once we've believed, help us not to be shaken by our emotions or false doctrine or anything else. Help us to be settled. You've given us the testimony. It's in. It's done. We can know right now, not because we're arrogant, but because we're standing on your promises, which are yes and amen in Jesus. And if you don't know, maybe you're watching at home, maybe you're new to the things of the Spirit, and you, you, you came in here not knowing. Here's the good news. You can know. And you know by receiving the Son. To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become sons of God. You've got to have a moment when you receive him. And maybe this is your moment. Don't let it pass you by. Something this simple yet profound, Jesus, I've heard the testimony of who you are, and I believe. And I repent of false ideas, or maybe thinking my good works could get me to heaven, or maybe I embraced a new age idea of Christ, or whatever it might be. I'm sorry. Thank you for sharing the truth with me. I want to follow you. I want to know you. Save me. Forgive me. I ask you to be my Lord, my God, and my King. You don't have to have a perfect prayer. He knows your heart. And he'll save you right now on the spot. Simply by grace through faith. If you're a believer and maybe you've been a little unsettled lately, I pray that you would know tonight and not be rattled. You can stand upon this promise of 1 John 5, 13. Especially maybe for those of you who wrestle with where you're at before the Lord. And for all the saints, Lord, I pray you'd bless them, keep them, let your beautiful face shine upon them, and give them shalom, give them peace. Amen. Amen.